Hello and welcome back to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And we don't have any news today because we've been on our holidays, haven't we? We have. We basically just switched off all news sources and just enjoyed a big old tour of the southeast because it's an area that we really didn't know before last week. Yeah, we sort of, we've been saying for years that we would just take a week off and visit loads of nature reserves and stuff like that. And we actually did it, which was great. Yeah, it was a real treat. And we got to see your brother as well. And just it was just a lovely, lovely week. But very excitingly, we also got to meet Neil from UK Wild wildlife podcast yeah and we hung around a gatepost for about two hours looking at one particular spider yeah we went to this one reserve and honestly we spent an hour and a half before we even got into the reserve just looking at all the things going on in this one gatepost it's just a metal galvanized gatepost and there was a tree bumblebee nest in the gatepost and there was a fence post spider yeah. And some long massive longhorn beetles and things. It's amazing when you shrink down your like view of the world to an insect level, how much detail you can cram in. We actually joked about how long it was going to take us to get back to the car, but it did take us literally 2 hours to get like 400 meters down a footpath yeah, or something. Well, so we we also went to the big RHS Wisley Garden. We've never been there before. It's a huge site. So we just went one direction, went off into the Pinetum first, and they've got these huge pine trees and just rough grass and meadow and stuff underneath. And we spent about four hours going through the Pinetum. Keeping in mind, pines are evergreen, so you can go at any time of year. (laughs) And we spent nearly all of our time in the Pinetum, and half an hour before the end, we discovered... All the walled gardens, all the rose gardens, all the vegetable gardens, the big herb mound, the alpine gardens, basically all of the rest of the garden we found in the last <laughs> half an hour before we had to leave. It means we have to go back because we really, I mean, we, we got a glimpse of the rest of the, the, the space and it is really beautiful. If you can get yourself to RHS Wisley, it's so fantastic. And I think this year as well, because... We had that really, really cold spring. So lots of things were delayed. Things that would have been flowering earlier have been delayed to now. And then the things that are flowering now are also flowering now. So you end up with this absolutely incredible display of pretty much everything yeah, it felt like. Compressed. Oh my goodness. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. But yeah, we, we did me- mess up our timing. Yeah. Apparently seven hours isn't long enough to walk around one garden. Yeah, we left when you're at us. half five in the morning oh, to get God. there and then spent five hours looking at pine trees. But there and is... kingfishers, come on. Oh yeah, well that's the thing because the pine area is next to the river walk and a, a lot of the wilder areas. Yeah, and we sent our message to our mate Gareth whose book we're, we're talking about in the um, book club today. And he just laughed his head off at us because we were so obsessed with the wildlife and missed all the plants. <laughs> yeah, no, we need to redress the balance slightly. And forgot, especially when you're paying to get in. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oops. Yeah. But we did see, um, oh God, I love this. We saw uh, banded and beautiful damoiselles. They were just fl- fluttering around the Pinetum, weren't they? Absolutely stunning. And I think the banded damoiselle, it's a type of damselfly. They prefer muddy bottom streams, while the beautiful damoiselle prefers a gravel bottom stream. So to have both of them there, I, I didn't, yeah. Were there many streams in that area? There was that river, wasn't there, that was running through? Yeah, but, it but... Might, I think it's a bit windy, isn't it? There's probably more gravelly areas on it. Yeah, it was just really magical to see. Lovely. Yeah, uh, absolutely beautiful pinus radiata though and loads of um interesting birches as well so i've got our camera when we came back was full of bugs and photos of interesting 
Lab- just the labels, the labels of the interesting trees, which we're, we're going to try we and plant need, some We now do customers. need another holiday to look up the photos of the bugs we've taken to get an identification and the, the, the labels of all these plants. Yeah, exactly. So that it's not just on our camera. Yeah, and we also, well, we, we did quite a lot of camping, didn't we? And there was one camp that we stayed in, which was in amongst some woodland. And we actually found, oh, this was really amazing. But we walked through, I think we were just going to the loo or something. And this beautiful moth just started following us because we had head torches on. And it landed on my shoe and we got an identification and it was the light emerald moth. We still have to put some photos of that up on, on the Facebook page, but that is really, really beautiful. Yeah, it's like pearlescent, isn't it? It's like a shimmering white, but with a re- like a, a pale green sheen to it. It's emerald. quite difficult to describe. <laughs> yeah, um, with beautiful stunning, antennae as yeah, well. Yeah, and patterning and yeah glorious and then another mothy story as well was at Dungeness but this was a bit odd because it was broad daylight and actually this is a night flying moth as well but the cream spot tiger oh yeah we were waiting in the queue for some chips on the on the seafront and uh this kid in a family in front of us was holding what they they were saying it was a butterfly and then when we clocked eyes on it yeah, it was a, what did you say? It was cream, cream spot, cream spot tiger, wasn't tiger. Yeah. Oh my goodness. They are absolutely amazing. I yeah. Was... They're like a, they're like a tiger pattern on the top, but underneath they're like bright, bright red and they've got a great big thick body. They're a big moth. They're like, it was over an inch across, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Oh God, more than that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. No, I think the the parent of this child was a bit surprised when this 36 year old woman child me i.e. me started getting really really excited yeah. about what her kid was holding but it was quite good because i think well we taught her what it was and she, i think she appreciated that but yeah she was a bit like who is this woman yeah <laughs> yeah we should also say hello to priya and adam out there who we know listen to the show and uh that was who we well we went with priya didn't we to dungeness we did where we also saw sea kale for the first time i've never actually clocked my eyes on sea kale in flower as well yeah um, really loads stunning. of it yeah really really beautiful another thing that neil has said, since told me that he's seen in the area is the late spider orchid which really made me a little bit mad because we one of the reasons why we went down there in june is to maybe catch some of the orchids um because they're starting to bloom now so yeah, well done, Neil, for spotting that. But what we did see when we were down there, which we were super excited about, was the lady orchid, which is a really, really rare orchid, which we found in a nature reserve in Sussex. Really beautiful. Again, we'll have to put photos up of all these things on Facebook. If you look at the photos, they've got eyes as yeah. well, which I didn't notice at the time. You have to zoom in. And they're wearing this sort of bonnet as well. So it's like a Victorian woman, basically, in her long petticoats and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're just so super excited about that. We also heard quite a lot of cuckoos while we were there, which is something that we don't really hear, obviously not at all, where we live in urban Nottingham. But even in the countryside around here, I've not actually heard a cuckoo. And we had the, I think we heard about three or four, and one was so close. I was running around on the ground, looking up with my binoculars, trying to spot it, but unfortunately couldn't. But that was really, really magic. Yeah, and night jars in the same place too. I've never heard a night jar before. Yeah. And they have this amazing call, which Should I'm... I do an impression? Yeah, go on. Okay. Is that good? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like... <laughs> it's more like oh, no, that was rubbish 
Okay. <laughs> Maybe just Google that, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to our impressions of birds. Still, fun. Um, yeah. Oh, it's just such a good week. I've, yeah, we I've, went to about five, five nature reserves, didn't we? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. And considering, yeah. we keep saying this, considering it was half term, which we did not mean to go on holiday during that period. It was a complete muck up on our part. Because we were in nature reserves, we were so far away from the majority of people. It felt like we really got away from it all. Yeah. So while we were away, we got back just a couple of days ago and our garden has completely exploded. Yeah. And normally, I don't like it when people say, oh, my plants have exploded because that's what they're supposed to do. You know, it's not that's not wrong. They're supposed to grow. But because everything is so compressed, you know, we went away and things had only just started sprouting. And some of the geraniums we've got in the, the back garden have grown like a metre tall in that week. Yeah, it's and been nuts. And all the foxgloves have all just come out. It's just, it's looking great at home. So yeah, I hope everybody's gardens uh, are also doing that as well. And we've we've noticed the insect life, you know, now the warm weather's come. It's all starting to pick up as well, isn't it? Yeah, it really has. I, I think when you go away for a week and I, I, as much as I, I tried, I basically put everything in, in a little puddle of water knowing it was going to be a hot week. I still kind of expected a little bit of death on our return. Yeah. But instead we opened the back door and it was jungular it really and truly i mean some flowers that were two inches tall in their pots before we left and now a foot tall i've never i've actually never known anything quite like it it's really really exciting to see so that's enough about our holiday we would like to as usual hear from you guys as well so if you want to let us know what you've been up to in your garden how much things have grown what's looking great things you've tried successes and some failures as well actually we want to hear about it all. Please do get in touch and you can do that via Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast or on twitter.com forward slash the wild GDM. And if you want to leave us a longer note, then please do get in touch with us on email and that is the wildlife garden at hotmail.com. Yes, and in that vein, we've actually got a new feature for the podcast this week. And we're going out to some of our correspondents around the country to hear about what you've been up to. So we are asking people, if you can, if you can record it on your phone, just record five minutes or less of who you are and what you've been up to and what you've been doing for wildlife in your garden at home. And then you can send it into us via that email address. The first one we've got is Kieran and Kaz Dodds up in their garden in Scotland. My name's Kieran Dodds. I'm a photographer based in Edinburgh and I live here with my wife Kaz and my two girls Ada and Izzy. We moved through about four years ago and we got this semi-detached bungalow and we got a plot which runs east to west uh, behind the house and it's really been quite a experience having my own garden. I've lived in tenement flats in Glasgow previously and uh, as a kid though I used to have a bit of space in my mum and dad's garden to to grow things but suddenly this was quite a big plot relative to what we'd done um and so a lot of the first few years was clearing back things allowing things to come up um to see what there was and the people who kept it before have created a beautiful space um it's got hedges all the way around it's got mature trees which is quite unusual nowadays people tend to just flatten the garden and put turf down um but this beautiful mature cherry overhead which sprays us with confetti like blossom every may um but also at the back of the garden 
um, there's an ash in my neighbour's garden, but a, a big birch, which really was inspiration for the section we've been working on recently. Um, last year, we actually I planted three birches in this space uh, with a view to make a little mini forest. Um, but also as part of our exhibition in LA, and as part of that, they sent over um, a tree to every artist who took part. And I got birches, <laughs> so I ended up with five birches, but one died. Um, so in this small space, it's going to feel, um, and it already feels like a, a sort of young forest. Last year, they were about a foot high. Now they're actually taller than me. So it's quite incredible, the growth there. One feature you see as you come up to it is this uh, mound of earth, a berm. Um, it looks slightly like a shallow grave, uh, <laughs> which is quite apt in Edinburgh. But it's actually from where we excavated a pond. So when you come through the forest bit, you go towards... I've got a wee studio at the back, um, and it's tall grasses, and they've got the birches, there's poppies, and, and ox-eye daisies I grew from seed last year, um, or in the last couple of years, actually. But this year, they're coming into their own. Um, and there's also some of the plants, the original plants they had before, the ferns, um, flowering currant, and, and some roses. We, we can't say we're massive rose fans, but they had a good collection of roses. Uh, but, but just by the studio we've got the path edged out because everything else is just growing wild and I think that makes it look slightly intentional um, the wildness but around this little pond and it's not massive I mean it's about 3 foot by 4 foot um, about 70 centimetres deep but when I was a teenager I used to just scrape out a bit of ground to put some plastic down and put some water in it and it was incredible to see the the wildlife that came the amount of birds that came to drink and the insects that, that came as well it was, it was amazing and even all, since doing this we took we took a few days off in march to dig it out and um get it ready already you can see um plants uh coming up and and insects and a resident frog now um but even in the last day this lily that I put in there has just sprung to the surface and is spreading out its leaf. So it's just wonderful seeing that, you know. Um, and the girls love it. They sit down and they watch like caterpillars falling from the apple tree above and, and swimming for safety. So it really is a place to just relax and unwind. And I think that's why I like wildlife gardening in particular, this sort of rewilding approach, um, because it's complex. It's not like straight lines and, and spaces in between. It's like a really complex mix of things. And I think our brains actually get more tired looking at straight lines and uh, a blank canvas. Whereas nature is complex. And I think it occupies us. And it's restful because of that. You know, it's green and beautiful, of course. But I think it's that complexity that there's just always something new to see. Uh, and every day just now, it seems... In Scotland, you get so much light in summer that things are just leaping forth. So it's a great place. And my wife, Kaz, and I come out here many an evening and just sit and enjoy it. Because ultimately, gardening is hard work, isn't it? But that's what I've found in the last few years. But there needs to be these moments when you just rest against the spade and look at what you've done um, and be thankful.
Oh, that just that's so good to hear from you, Kieran. Thank you so much for sending that in. It's really lovely actually to get the detail of what people are doing across the UK. Yeah, if you're out there and you enjoyed that and you'd like to share your garden with us, your experiences, then please do send us a little voice memo. Yeah, we'll put details of how you can do that again into the show notes for the podcast. But moving on now, it is time for our latest book club. And this is Do Bees Need Weeds? Written by Gareth Richards, who we interviewed a couple of episodes ago, and Holly Farrell. And this book is a collection of all sorts of different handy hints and tips that can help you do things better for wildlife in your own garden at home. Yeah, it's it's like environmentally friendly gardening. And the way the book's been written is literally like a series of questions that are being answered. And under each question, you get the really short, succinct answer if you haven't got much time. But then you also have the the more in-depth answer. But they only dedicate sort of a page to two pages per question. So it's actually a really easy book just to pick up. I think as a reference book would work quite well. So you could just have it on your shelf and then if you if a question pops into your head, you're probably going to find it in this book, to be honest with you. It really does cover such a huge range of topics and ideas. And what they've done is sort of put those questions into broad categories, or i.e. chapters. And those chapters are the bigger picture, how to start green, greener edibles, wildlife backup, and also reusing and recycling. So what I'm going to do today is uh, I read this book while we were away on holiday, actually. And I was just going to give you an overview of each of those sections with some of the things that we've learned from the book. And so in the bigger picture, this is essentially a series of questions around whether a garden can actually help the environment, whether chemical use is something we should be worried about. And also how to help if you don't have a garden, which I really liked, actually, although I don't know how many people would buy the book if they didn't have a garden. But (laughs) I think in terms of if you didn't already know about some of the things in it, then you could always tell a friend that doesn't have a garden. I think that's a really good idea. And also how you might leave a legacy in terms of gardening, not only with your own plot, but in terms of actually teaching others. So it's actually it's really broad spectrum as the the bigger picture chapter heading would, would maybe imply. So the book kicks off with the first question, and that is whether or not garden lights are harmful. What I liked about this is that it really doesn't skirt around the issue. And this is how I describe the rest of the book as well. You do, even in the the longer explanations of the answers, you still get quite a, a succinct picture. And the short answer is that, yes, garden lights are harmful to general wildlife and that's not just the nocturnal creatures like bats but also daytime creatures as well like birds and that's just because over you know thousands of years of evolution the the daylight times have been set for these creatures and that's how they've evolved so their internal clocks if you like are very much programmed to know when to be active because of the amount of light there is outside so when we put all this artificial light out there it really just just confuses the picture for them well that actually counts for us as well you know there's loads of research saying that just having you don't sleep as well if you look at loads of lights before bed you know if you're on your phone and all that sort of stuff so the same is true for birds basically and uh, there's lots of research showing that the dawn chorus in urban areas is up to even an hour or more earlier than in the countryside because the street lights just confuse them into thinking dawn is coming before it actually is and I mean, already in the summer, the blackbirds, well, when we were camping, 
the we can confirm that the dawn chorus started at about three o'clock in the morning so they really don't need to be getting up any earlier than that yeah but yeah so basically in your garden don't be tempted by loads and loads of festoon lights and things that are just generally switched on you know all the time you always see gardens lit up by fairy lights it might look really good but the damage that it's doing isn't worth how good that looks, especially when you're asleep. You just, just turn it off you, when you go to bed. Just turn it off. Or, as the book suggests, if you are wanting to light up your garden, make a really beautiful scene, for example, if you're having a barbecue or something, then why not use candles as, as an alternative? And we've done this in our garden. We've just you know, collected loads of jam jars and put little tea lights and just dotted them all the way around the garden. And it really does look really beautiful and has really minimal impact. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And if you are having something like a security, light you can always have it on a sensor as well another question is whether whether or not gardening while being in a sea of concrete so i say we're in this situation where we live other people don't generally do much with their garden particularly on our street from what we can see from our bedroom window it is just a sea of concrete and then our little oasis in the middle Uh, So the question is whether or not that's worth the effort. Does the wildlife find that space? And again, the short answer is, of course, yes, as we've proven time and time again with our own space in terms of what we attract. And I'd also add, and the book doesn't actually say this, but while the more beautiful that you make your own space, even if it is in a sea of concrete, maybe someone else has never been interested in gardening, but sees how beautiful it looks and can be inspired in in their own right. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. In terms of corridors, the more spaces there are, the better. But even if you feel like you're segregated from other green areas you'd be really surprised how quickly the wildlife can find your space yeah well on well i'm not claiming that i did this because it was actually heli but outside the front of our house it basically it's terrace house pavement road and ellie with our neighbor built some planters wooden planters and just shoved them under the windowsill outside the front and there's just a, a huge amount of life in there. There's loads of spiders. Bees come visiting and foraging. White-tailed bumblebees were out there just the other day. Moth caterpillars as well. We had dark arches, which yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, loads more ladybirds and various other shield bugs we find in there. Yeah, it's just great. And it's it's just a, what would you say? It's about a 75 centimetre tall planter. And uh, we've just basically plant, we've split plants that we already had yeah. we haven't put a penny into into yeah. them the the planters were free and the great thing is sometimes on the school run i was about to um, say this you can hear the kids walk past and talk about all the flowers it's yeah. just so lovely it's much better than just looking out onto cars yeah, i mean which exactly. is the alternative but yeah it's really nice to hear parents and kids interacting around our planters which wouldn't happen if they weren't there so yeah. yeah so if you're on concrete the answer is to get creative really get creative exactly And as I said a few minutes ago, a few of the answers also really helpfully drop in ways you might be able to still garden even without a garden yourself. Or as I said, encourage others to do the same. And that's from finding and joining a local gardening group, which of which there are seriously many. You just a quick search on Facebook and you'll probably find something in your area. Yeah, community gardens are absolutely fantastic. And they're screaming out for people all the time. The more volunteers, the better. So yeah, getting stuck into a community garden or if you are not going to, if you, well, actually some people can't physically do the gardening themselves, being the voice for wildlife in your area by actually being the person that is always in touch with your councillor. So get your council to be more green and they do listen if you keep pushing them. But I mean, that takes, I think that the more tenacious people can do that. Yeah, there's a truth about councils, which is they respond to complaint 
really. They do. So if loads of people are complaining that the verges are overgrown and messy, then they'll go and stream them. But if loads of people get in touch with them, more people then are complaining about it being messy. If more people get in touch saying, why are you streaming the hedges? They're so fantastic for wildlife. Yeah. Then they'll go, uh, oh, oh, okay, we won't do it then. Yeah, in, in Nottingham, actually, the council have only just in the last couple of weeks been you know on their little... Uh, quad bikes spraying off all the street weeds and a friend of mine on her street has actually I think she's done it now she was going to do it she wanted to start a petition for people living on her street to send to the council to tell them to not do that because actually quite a lot of the weeds they were totally harmless they didn't look particularly messy they weren't stopping water flow or anything they were just I don't know what it is. People just think that you shouldn't have green things where there's a sea of concrete. It's yeah, weird, we really should, weird. We should give a shout out to Nottingham Organic Gardeners, which is a community garden near to us. And some people involved in that and also a local project called um, Wild NG in Nottingham. They've been going out and getting chalk pens, basically, and making arrows on the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then writing the name of the the flower and then circling the flower so it, just to point out to people what that these it things is are actually a plant in its own right yeah exactly i think that loads of people really really love doing that yeah as well. it's a project that people have been doing around the country um i don't know who came up with it in the first place but it's yeah it's a great thing to do and it just shows yeah that weed is a, a wildflower by any other name really So moving on to the next section, which is how to start green. And this section is all the really practical answers to questions you might have if you've just in, moved into a new plot and you just need to make a start. So quite often you can sort of look out your window and think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? Yeah, that's really true of beginner gardeners, I think. Oh, you, indeed. Because once, once you're an old hand, you just... Have a go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it, but if you don't know what you're doing is the right thing, often that... Um, really stresses people out don't they and then exactly. they, they never get started so it's better just to um read a book like this and just and get growing gradually it gives you a bit of a, a helping hand i think it gives you hand. permission to make a start when you read some advice on something you sort of think okay right you know you get more confidence don't you yeah that's right so saying that the first answer to, in this section and this is repeated again in later sections does stress the benefits of working towards a bigger plan for your garden. So if you're rearranging it for the first time, or even if it's established and you want to make it better for wildlife, it is still really useful to get to know your plot and then to maybe sketch out a little uh, scale drawing of the area and to make a plan for what you want it to look like at the end point. But that, of course, does not mean you need to go ahead and just do it all at once. What it does is makes you able to focus on each section at a time while knowing that what you're doing is working towards this bigger idea that you have. And that can also really help as well. Of course, an important part of making that plan is to plan it for you as well as the wildlife. For example, where do you want to be able to sit in the evening sun? Or in terms of wildlife, which north slash east facing site would be best for a nest box? Which part is particularly damp and cool and would be great for that log pile or hibernaculum for the amphibians in your garden? Or is there a nice sunny spot that a bee hotel could be sited? So, in terms of making the plan, like I said, it's really, really good to get to know the garden well before you actually embark on it, because actually quite often the answers will sort of jump out at you without you having to do all the investigation. And like I said before, also a scale drawing means that you won't be left with any over or undersized features for the space that you have. We actually did it for our little plot, didn't we? A bit of graph paper and just measure 
the general outline of your garden it can really really help can't it yeah i mean it doesn't need to be accurate to millimeters it's just to give you a rough idea and especially if you're planting a a tree or a shrub and it says the ultimate size is three meters across or something there's no point putting it somewhere where you've only got 50 centimeters of space because you're just going to end up cutting it and if you end up cutting it then if you're doing it the wrong time you'd be cutting off either the flowers or the fruit so it's you know you're affecting its benefit for wildlife so yeah, it's absolutely worth having a think about. Well, I mean, it's good advice, just right plant, right place, which is what we always say, isn't it? But then the same is true for bug hotels, bird boxes, all yeah. the rest of it. And we've obviously covered bird boxes in, a, in an early episode as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing that is often recommended is to wait the first year you get a new garden and see what comes up. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything in that first year. But what it does mean is, and this really is true, you might get a garden and in the summer it looks like it's baked dry. It comes around to the winter and one corner is a pond. And if you don't know that the first year, you might well have dug over a border there or something, you know, put yeah. in a load of unsuitable plants. It and then it just costs an absolute fortune, doesn't it? Because then you're, you're more likely to lose those plants that you've spent that money on to yeah, exactly. put in. So. so it really is worthwhile not making big big changes in the first year and uh, giving it a full year round and seeing what comes up because also if you're taking over a new garden you might not know there's a load of bulbs that would come up you yeah. know you you might have just missed the boat or if you're not sure what the different trees and shrubs are you might think i always think of hibiscus with this you think that tree is definitely dead <laughs> because it doesn't come into leaf until really late in the year and you might think oh if you you know if you didn't know that you'd think that that's had it and <laughs> you'll dig it out but of course if you've just waited that extra month you'd see that it has all these you know beautiful leaves and blooms as well so absolutely wait a little make sure you know what is coming up in your garden and then yeah always think about the right plant right place and a final question that I wanted to just cover in this particular section, because I learned something very interesting. This is with our US and Canadian listeners in mind in particular. So the question is, why are there no earthworms in my soil? And this can happen if you've you know, got a new space and you've dug it over and you just think, well, this is there's nothing living here. Especially if you're on a new build with loads of compacted just rubble and stuff which we often are working in as well ourselves and well the short answer is of course if you don't have earthworms then you need to be investing in improving your soil and this is obviously a crucial tenet of organic gardening in general even if you have good soil continuing to feed it really does make a difference to the quality of your plants and yeah when we the feed wildlife. we mean mulching for, not fertilizer no that right. does that doesn't really do anything for the soil but no so regularly mulching with organic matter like compost or leaf mould in particular ideally your own homemade stuff if you've got space for a compost bin really makes such a huge difference to the soil life and earthworms really are one of the most important animals that you can have in your garden because of the amount of work unseen work that they do under the ground so the benefits really are huge in investing in this uh, mulching of your soil but It is a very different story, as I've learned, in the US and in Canada. So I had no idea that there are no indigenous earthworms there since the last ice age. This totally blew my mind. Just assume they were everywhere. Yeah, we're talking about the big beefy earthworms that you get in the UK. Yeah, the the huge ones that really, like the JCBs of the soil life. But yeah, in, in US and Canada, they don't have any of those. And what has actually become quite a problem is our own European and also Asian earthworms have sort of they've made their way in either via potted plants or i think fishing as well they were used as a fishing bait and they've just managed to get into the ecosystem 
And this ecosystem has not developed with earthworms as being part of it. So they've actually become a huge problem in that they actually recycle organic matter too fast for the plants that have evolved in the area, which totally blew my mind. I did not consider that earthworms could be a problem. Even so, wherever you are, mulching is still really important. The next section is all about vegetables. And so it's called greener edibles. And it's whether or not you can grow vegetables in an environmentally sustainable way and whether it's actually good for wildlife as well. And actually, I would say that in the previous section, there was a general question, what helps the environment more, food or flowers? And in summary, both actually help. So if you grow veg with the environment in mind, so you can leave a couple of leeks in the ground to flower, they're really, really good. In the same way that our ornamental alliums are, they have these big ball flowers on top, which the bees absolutely love. And also artichokes, the same. If you've ever left artichokes unharvested, then the the, the purple fluffy flowers that are produced are just smothered in bees. And also having fruit trees. It's not even a case of giving up your fruit. You actually need the bees to be on the blossom in spring to be able to get the fruit. So they're just really, really, really great resources for wildlife, particularly peaches, plums and apricots, actually, because they're really early flowering. So they're a really important pollen and nectar source for the pollinators that emerge early. So basically, there isn't really a rule as to whether or not food or flowers is the best But in general, it's just always good to have a mixture. And like we always say, have more habitats, more variety in your garden, and you're just going to be helping a bigger variety of wildlife as well. And going back to the pollination, of course, if you if you do have a veg plot, just having veg is absolutely fine if that's what you want. But you're going to have better veg if you do also mix in other flowers around it, because you're going to be drawing in the pollinators to the wonderful resources of nectar and pollen. And they will then go on to pollinate your crops, which will obviously give you a bigger harvest. Now, in this section, of course, pests are mentioned because, generally speaking, what we like to eat also seems to be extremely palatable to a huge range of other creatures. Nice soft lettuces. Yum, yum, yum. And that's absolutely fine. Like we always say, don't panic if you see some some sort of pest on your vegetables. But when numbers are unmanageable and you're left with just sort of husks of the food that you wanted to be eating then maybe you do need to think about how to control them but actually a step before that is to maybe consider planting vegetables that are less susceptible to pests in the first place yeah it's a specific question isn't it whether there are any sort of pest-free veg that you can grow and there are in the book they just give a, a a few examples of what you might grow that is generally considered pest free and that includes rhubarb perpetual spinach which gives you a really fantastic crop over such a long period as well if you like your leafy greens beans also are pretty pest free yeah particularly the climbing and french beans yeah there's just hardly anything goes for them and they also have beautiful flowers so again really good for the bees yeah the the, um, the french beans are just great ornamental plants growing up just a trellis we've grown them at home and you can if you are looking for some height in your borders you can always just put you know like you would do for a clematis or something like that put some sort of support obelisk or something in the middle and grow beans up it yeah Yeah, why not they're beautiful and actually if you have things like the borlotti beans 
also generally pretty pest free even the seed pods look nice just hanging there yeah they do and of course there's also courgettes which apart from making sure they're watered to stop the powdery mildew coming in if you've got even just two plants in your garden you're going to be in courgettes for the whole of that season yeah you've got the opposite problem with courgettes you always just have you want to give some away to the wildlife because you can never eat it all yourself can you so yeah I, li- I like the answer to that question because if you have either a small space and you're just getting into growing vegetables for the first time those examples are really good ones to start with because then you're you're just focusing on keeping the plants alive with your own efforts rather than worrying about something else coming in and taking it from you so while the vast majority of questions in this in the whole of this book sort of go back to what is good for wildlife there is one section that is specifically about wildlife and that is this section called wildlife backup and the first question is actually the name of the book do bees need weeds in essence it sticks up for the weeds out there so did you know for example that honeybees have been flying around for 35 million years while we in our current form are a mere 200,000 years old that's us humans So when we come in as babies and say that a certain plant, which is normally a native, is a weed, for example, the dandelion or the meadow buttercup, that's totally irrelevant to the bees. They just see it as another flower, which is something for them to forage from. So the book therefore suggests that we stop being obsessively tidy and that we simply tolerate their presence more. So going back to the the weeds in the, I say in inverted commas, the weeds in the streets, And that's because they are a hugely important source of nectar and pollen. Of course, it's the main premise of No Mo May, which we were a proponent of in a previous episode. And loads and loads of councils have been doing it. And we've actually seen just fields of white clover coming up in what would be just a green sward otherwise if it had been mown. And I didn't know this, but Trifolium repens, which is the white clover, is actually a really good attractor of parasitoid wasps, which often predate aphids, scales and whiteflies. So actually it totally makes sense to be encouraging them into your garden. And all it involves is to accept this plant in your lawn. Another big question out there is about slugs. I mean, this is usually the RHS's number one pest that is reported by us gardeners panicking about things being eaten in our garden. And I mean, quite rightly, they, they can raise your seedlings to the ground if left alone to there their own devices. There are about four or five real baddies there that about- actually are a pain in the head (laughs) (laughs) yeah or a pain in the cabbage but as we said in the actually the last episode not all slugs are bad so in the book they suggest putting the pellets away even the ferric phosphate ones which is supposedly better for the environment better for wildlife they still indiscriminately kill all slugs and when you look in more detail about the different species for example the leopard slug if you're killing off the leopard slug well you're killing off actually something that eats other slugs so you could be making the problem a whole lot worse overall and just disrupting the balance and there's also actually another one the green cellar slug which eats mold and algae and that's really important to help tidy up in the garden what i will just add is this is this isn't i love adding a bit of growth in but in our own garden as we said before the way we control slug and snail populations which are pretty high for our for a tiny garden because there's so many nooks and crannies for them to hide in we go out and we handpick them 
at night with head torches. And I've started calling this night safariing because actually the things I see at 11 p.m. in our garden are fantastic. And I've witnessed certain slugs seem to enjoy the taste of bird droppings. Mm. <laughs> and this is under our bird feeder. And they seem to make a beeline for these droppings. So they're just doing me a favour by and the birds as well by keeping that area tidy for us. So that's just another way just to highlight that it's really important not to disrupt the balance by indiscriminately killing all of one type of creature in your garden. The final question I'll just talk about in that section is just to mention ponds. And of course, we've done a whole episode on the importance of ponds in your garden and generally having water even if it's just a bog garden, is super, super invaluable for all types of wildlife. But if you have just a patio or a concrete yard or even a, ba- a balcony, putting out water for the birds is really good. But also, have you thought about making a bee drinker? And we've done this and suggested it to other people as well. You put out a tray of water, which you also then fill with gravel so that the gravel is sort of half submerged. And that just gives a platform for the bees to land on so that they can actually drink. And again, it's just one of those things. It's minimal effort and it really, really does work. And yeah, they- and that would be great for um, butterflies as well, hoverflies, anything that flies basically they can get there they'll all make use of it as well exactly and you know we've done it in our own garden and it's really well used so yes that's something that everyone can do for sure yeah and if you're into photography as well then uh, set up your camera pointing right at this um this bee drinker and you'll get some really nice photos of all the insects that are visiting Ooh, your garden nice. too top tip top tip so the final section or chapter is all around reusing and recycling and this is really close to our hearts because I'm a bit of a womble, shall we say. And if something's going for free, then I will probably take it, much to Ben's dismay. But what I will say about this is that it just highlights how gardening is not only for the wealthy. You can make a really beautiful garden from so many reused and repurposed things in your garden, or even just things that other people are chucking out. For example, the planters outside the front of our house are just made from old pallets and other people's unwanted plants, and they just look really great. And in the same vein, as well as reusing and repurposing materials, you can also make new plants from old plants really, really easily from dividing clumps of herbaceous perennials, which actually we all have to do every now and again to refresh our own crop. But if you have dug some up and potted a little bit up, then why not give it to a friend or a neighbour? as long as that plant is healthy. And also something that I am pretty obsessed with, it's fair to say, and that is to take cuttings. So there's a vast array of plants that you could take cuttings from, root them up, and again, they make really great presents for people. Yeah, gardening absolutely does not have to be expensive, but it can cost you a fortune if you go to a garden centre. So one thing I would really recommend, I think we've recommended it before, is picking up a really good book on propagation, and there's various ones out there. The one we normally recommend is just the RHS Encyclopedia of Propagation. And it's quite an expensive book. It might be £18, 15 or £18, something like that. But you buy that once and it teaches you how to get free plants from all of your plants then forever. So, you know, it's it's for the cost of two or three potted plants from the garden centre. Just buy this one book and you'll be in free plants for the rest of your life. Once you start, you really can't stop. And it's really easy to get the bug, especially for taking cuttings, because I just look out at our garden and all the things that we've taken cuttings from that are now flourishing. And it's just really nice to know that it costs us very, very little. 
Yeah, so that concludes our chat around this week's book club. And I think that if you are new to gardening or if you've just got yourself a new plot, this is a really, really good resource for answering all those little fiddly questions. And I've really only just given the tip of the iceberg. There's, I think there's over a hundred questions that yeah, are answered in this book. We just couldn't talk about all of them. Plus we'd like you to go out and buy it. Exactly. That's a, a nice thing to do. And I think it's, it's really beautiful as well, actually. If you wanted to give it as a gift, I think it would make a really nice gift to someone that's new to things as well. Yeah, I mean, everybody's different in the way that they learn and the sort of type of book that they want to read. I will happily sit down and read an encyclopedia, <laughs> but not everybody's like that. And if you want a book that you can dip in and out of when you want a, a, an answer to something specific, this is a great place to look. And also, just a, as an aside, Gareth, who's one of the authors of this book, also has a new book out that's called RHS Weeds, The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants. So do check out the show notes for links to both the book we've just reviewed and that new book as well. Brilliant. So before we go on to the native plant of the week, which is the Red Campion this time, as you might have heard in previous episodes, we are raising money for the podcast, which just helps us cover our costs, pay for things like all the music and the equipment that we use. And we've had some wonderful donations over the last couple of weeks, and we wanted to say thank you to everybody who's donated. For details of how to donate to our fundraiser, which is called Get the Wildlife Garden Podcast Some Gear, then follow links in the show notes to on your podcast app or online, or go to our website, elliswellies.com, where we host all the show notes for everything about today's discussion, along with a link to the fundraiser too. And you'll find details on there also as to what the donations are going towards. Yeah, so now it's time to roll the music and say thank you to all of the donations we've had in the last couple of weeks. Thanks to Charlotte Packman. To Tal Millard. To Stuart Murdoch. To Martin Andrews. Gail Pryor. Gareth Richards. Sharon Maxwell. And Thomas Twitchett. And also to the two donors who gave privately. Yeah, you know who you are. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. And with your donations, the podcast hopefully is going to sound better and better as we go along. And it will help us keep going for the rest of the year. And indeed, this weekend, I'm now able to go out to Bristol to interview our second interviewee because of the equipment we've bought. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's with Nick Chu from the University of Bristol, who's going to talk to us all about how much nectar the plants in your gardens are actually producing and whether all plants are created equal when it comes to nectar provision. And they're not. That's the that's, <laughs> spoiler. That's the spoiler alert. But he's been doing. He's been the one actually going out with these teeny tiny pipettes and sucking the nectar out of flowers and uh, and working out what's really going on. Um, absolutely f- fantastic research. And uh, uh, he's in the middle of research. So I called him out yesterday to make arrangements, and he he sounded a bit flustered because he was in the middle of doing his his um, field work and he had a net. So I'm interested to find out exactly what he was netting. <laughs> Cool. Well, yes. And I think now we're ready to go on to native plant of the week. What is it this week, Ben? Yes, this time it is the red campion, Silene dioica. Now, we didn't cover this last time. So the genus name, Silene, probably derives from the ancient Greek word Cylon, which means saliva. And that's in reference to either the gummy substance that the plant secretes along the stems. And it does this with a lot of the other catchfly species, which are also in the Silene genus. Or because of a foamy substance the flowers produce, which is supposed to help collect um, pollen from visiting insects. 
the dioica bit comes from the fact that it's dioecious which means two houses and you'll have heard that before but we'll come back to that in the sexual antics section and i'm not actually sure where the campion name started the common name i haven't been able to find a reference for that but uh, other historical names included adder's flowers or robin hood so many of you out there will have seen this plant, even if you didn't know you've seen it. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's a beautiful hedgerow and meadow plant, which, like the cow parsley we discussed last week, is flowering all around the UK right now. And it usually flowers its best around May-June time. Like lots of things, it's been slightly delayed, I think, this year. But it can actually be found flowering all year round. We've seen it flowering in the middle of December, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, you get the odd flower here and there rather than the, the big sprays of flowers. So if you don't know it, the easiest thing to do is just to look it up online, of course, look up a picture. But as a brief description, it's a short-lived perennial, which means it lives for a few years before dying off. It grows to about a metre tall at its maximum, usually lower than that. If it's in long grass, it tends to grow a bit higher to flower over the top of it. It's got opposite leaves up the stem, and I thought now would be a good time to explain another botanical term, which is opposite versus alternate leaves. And you will start to notice this as you look at different plants. Some leaves, if you follow the stem up, they have one leaf on the left, and then it steps up a bit and then there's a leaf on the right and then it steps up and there's another leaf on the left and it's, that's the alternate leaves. Opposite leaves are just what they say where there's a pair of leaves opposite each other on the stem. So this plant, uh, the red campion, has opposite leaves and these leaves can be up to about 10 centimetres long if it's a really healthy, vigorous plant uh, and these leaves as well as the stems can often be um, hairy and also sticky. The flowers themselves are usually a bright, full pink. We uh, we just call it pink campion, don't we, when we're going around. Although the common name is red campion, but the thing with common names is they're whatever people call them. So I'm just going to carry on calling it pink campion privately. But they do actually come in various shades from, you get these rare albino white flowers through to light pinks. And when you see the light pinker ones, it's probably uh, a hybrid with white campion and it's quite an interesting hybridization because the white campion is an evening and nighttime flowerer whereas the red campion is a daytime flowerer so obviously there's some transfer of pollen going on there so if you see one that's a really really sort of vibrant pink that's going to be the red campion and if you see one that's a a lighter pastel pink that's more likely to be a hybrid so when we were in sussex we saw a really beautiful white coloured campion do we think that's a rare albino red campion because that was fl- no no because we saw that in the evening didn't we ah okay so yeah, that was what actually time was white it? it was about campion. six o'clock coming into seven yep. o'clock yep. so i think that was more likely to be the white campion and the white campion is more of a weed of arable fields as well near cultivated land um, whereas the red campion is more of a, a hedgerow and woodland clearing type plant so with each flower there are five petals but it actually looks like 10 petals because each petal is deeply divided it's split in two and they call this bifid petals which we said for the silene newtons the yeah. nottingham catchfly that's right and lots of other plants that you'll be seeing out at the moment like uh, greater stitchwort as well so red campion grows throughout the uk it is rarer in east anglia and in northern scotland but if you look at the distribution maps it's it's basically all over the place it also grows across central and northern europe even into central asia but it's actually absent from the mediterranean so sort of central europe is the is the lower limit of its spread it can be found over a thousand meters above sea level in scotland 
which is quite interesting because in the wild, generally around Nottinghamshire, we see it near deciduous woodland in scrub or meadows. It's a classic hedgerow plant, um, but it can actually grow on sort of shingle on the sides of um, mountains or in sea cliffs as well. So it's a really variable plant. But in general, it does prefer fertile and what they call base rich or calcareous soil. So that's more likely to be an alkaline soil. But now I've given you a brief description of what the plant is and where it grows. What we really want to know is about the sexual antics of the red campion. Okay, so given its name is Silene dioica, it's no surprise that the plant is dioecious, and that means there are separate male and female plants. The plant itself is diurnal, so that means it's a daytime flowerer, and the male flowers have either five or ten, depending on who you read, I need to actually check this myself, either five or ten yellow stamens protruding from the petals, while the female flowers have five white stigmas. It's insect pollinated, and when fertilised, they produce seed in a seed capsule, like we described with the um, the Nottingham catchfly as well. And this is what they call a sensor. So it's basically a, a, a dry capsule and when the wind rattles it, it shakes the seeds out. And lots of other species do this, particularly the poppies you might have seen. You know, if you rattle a poppy head, you can actually um, hear the seeds inside. But the most interesting thing about the red campion sex life is that it suffers from an STI, a sexually transmitted disease. Controversial. Or, yeah, or what is sometimes called a plant venereal disease. And this is a fungal pathogen called Microbotrium violaceum. And what it does, when it infects the plants, it sterilises the flowers, both the male and female flowers, and it causes the sexual parts in both to produce these black fungal spores in place of pollen. And when a bee comes along and it's actually looking for the nectar, instead of the pollen attaching to the bee, it actually catches some of these spores. And when then when it goes to another plant, it infects the following plant. So in infected plants, the centre of the flowers, you can actually see this, they're black with these soot-like spores. Sometimes these pathogens are called smuts because it just looks like a load of sooty dirt, basically, on the plant. I like the idea of a smutty STI. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So basically, these spores are transmitted from disease to healthy plants by pollinating insects looking for this pollen and nectar. So yeah, it, although not exactly an STI, like I said, they are called a plant venereal disease because it goes through the sexual process. Nice. Now, in terms of wildlife, most pollinators of red campion have long tongues or slim bodies because it's a tube the flower is a tube where the petals spread out at the surface that means if you've got a long tongue or a slim body you can basically get into the flower tube and access the nectar down at the bottom but before i mention some of the insects that actually do visit the flower red campion is one of the plants that's been found to be particularly susceptible to floral larceny or what is sometimes called nectar robbing. And we've talked about this in a previous episode. And this is where sneaky bees, basically, if they're too large for the flower tube, they chew a hole in the base of the flower, in the side, and get hold of the nectar without picking up the pollen in the process. I think that's just clever. Yeah, sneaky, (laughs) definitely. So as a food plant, the leaves and even the flower buds of red campion are eaten by loads of different species, including the larvae of the sandy carpet and campion moths. 
hence the name campion and the pollen is eaten by pollen beetles which are i'm not sure how you pronounce this it's the melagethes genus that counts for all the little pollen beetles you get if you're walking around with a yellow shirt in the summer and the nectar is loved by the garden white-tailed bumblebees as well even if they do nick it some hoverflies too and there are records of the flower being visited by a species called empis levida which is known as either the dance fly or the dagger fly i think we've mentioned the dance fly before yeah i think we have it's a really interesting looking fly with a uh, basically a long pointy um, mouth part that allows it to get in and access nectar but it also eats other insects as well so all around red campion supports loads of species but i do feel a bit sorry for the poor thing because on a bad day it might get robbed by a bee have a moth chew off all its leaves and then it could get infected with an sdi <laughs> at the same time so yeah the poor thing it gets a bit of a hammering by wildlife but that's a good thing. Well, it's a good thing. In a garden, wildlife. fortunately, all those things tend not to happen at the same time. So they're actually fairly unfussy plants and they are really easy to grow in a garden setting. And they look fantastic in just about any garden, I think. If you want to grow some at home, they aren't too worried about pH, given that they're found all over the UK. Although they do grow best, as I've said, on slightly alkaline soils. They also prefer to be in partial shade, which is mimicking their natural ecology, really, with moist roots, and that's when you get the best flowering from them. So that's when you see them in nature, you'll see them in hedgerow banks where they're slightly shaded through the day, or in dampish meadows. Um, If you do have a very sunny or free-draining area, though, it's one of those ones where you can still have a go, give it a try. The likelihood is the plants might be a bit shorter in stature, and they might not flower so profusely. I do think that it's obviously extremely relative. I think if you just had this dry situation, we've certainly got borders where red campion is self-seeded and we've left it. And to look at it, you wouldn't think that's not flowering very much. It is still covered in flower. It just it looks like a really good border plant, doesn't it? Because they're a short-lived perennial, they will last for a few years before dying off. So it's good to have a succession of them. And if you're already growing some at home, that means allowing some of them to set seed. Uh, So if you're happy with that, once you recognise what the seedlings look like, you can just allow them to set seed. And when the seedlings come up, you just pull up any excess seedlings where you don't want them. They're actually not difficult to weed out, are they? No, not at all. But if you aren't happy for them to seed around, then you should be careful to cut them back after flowering because they are they do produce quite a lot of seed. But as a top tip, whether or not you're allowing them to um, seed in the first instance, it's sometimes recommended if you cut them back after their first flowering, you might encourage them to flower twice. So that's really good. So that would mean just cutting back the flowering stem because on the leaves you might have the larvae of various moths as well so you don't want to chuck that away so just cut off the flowering stem and you might get a second flush later in the year to get yourself some if you don't already have a plant you can buy them cultivated and there are a few named varieties which we'll come on to in a minute but you can get the wild type quite easily as plugs from wildflower suppliers and again the plugs are just really tiny potted plants basically so you can buy loads and loads a whole tray of these plugs for a tenner and dot them all the way around the garden and then once they've grown up and flowered then you can just go from there basically with the seedlings that they spread themselves if you already have a cultivated plant particularly one of the name varieties and you want to bulk them up or you have a neighbor which has got some then it is possible to split them like lots of other herbaceous perennials 
but I only know this. I've never read this recommended by anybody. And if you read the advice on the RHS or on Gardener's World, they don't suggest splitting it. But basically, we gave it a go in one garden for a potted plant, and it worked. But I can't guarantee success because, again, nobody else seems to suggest this. So the the thing is, when when I dug it up, they some perennials have a very very thick root which is easy to chop in half and others they just tease apart quite easily when you dig them up but this the roots weren't really large enough to chop up into large sections with a at least with a spade and it it certainly wasn't large enough to to tease apart in you know with a couple of garden forks so i think basically what i did was i just got a garden trowel and i just hacked at it until i cut cut it into three bits very very professionally yeah we must add. <laughs> well i did say i didn't know at the time i did say i didn't know if it was going to work but it worked so i just basically just hacked at the roots until i had three different sections replanted them gave it a good watering in and they've done absolutely fine i was gonna say it not only worked it, ben's not giving giving it himself enough uh, credit here it actually looked really good because it was quite a big pot and we thought this clump looked really congested hence splitting it and like you said it worked but now there are three equally large size clumps spread out across the top of that pot and it is all flowering really really well they've made sort of a big pink mound of flower haven't they oh, it so, looks really really yeah, good it looks great yeah. right now the best way, though, I think, is to go out and just collect seed from the wild. They're very common plants. Once you are able to recognise them, you'll have no trouble going out. Obviously, don't collect all the seed from every plant, but just you know, a couple of these capsule seed heads will be enough. The early flowering individuals, so if there were some flowering near you in March and April, then they might well be producing seed very soon. Certainly, you'll be able to collect some of the early flowering seed heads by July or August time. All you want to do is go out and once you can recognise the plant, look for the dried brown seed heads and then take a paper bag with you and just collect them into that paper bag, keep them cool and dry away from sunlight until you're ready to sow them. In terms of sowing, research has shown that plants will germinate between 10 and 35 degrees C, but preferentially around 11 and 16 degrees the fact that there's two preferential temperatures might be to do with the fact that in fresh seed there's a high degree of dormancy so if you go out and collect this seed and sow it straight away it's likely that not all the seed is going to germinate straight off now it's probable that this is an adaptation because it allows some of the seed to germinate immediately you know if it's growing naturally some of the seed will germinate immediately and some will remain dormant until the following spring and that just hedges the bets for the plant's offspring you know if all of them came up at once and then there was some huge influx of a particular moth say then they would all get decimated but what it allows by germinating at different times of the year is just a bit of redundancy do you know how quickly they start flowering from germinating from seed is it the next year it's or the same year if it's in spring i think it's one of those where it's more likely to be the following year but if you have a if you had one flowering in december right and then it actually produced seed and it went down in march then it's likely it's it might flower by the following august september time but the the best thing to do basically if you're collecting seed is just to sow some into a pot or direct onto the ground and then just wait because the seed will germinate in its own time if you have a border that has got just just some gaps in it then just rake the seed in and just be sure to label where that gap is so you don't plant something else there and allow the seed to come up or you can just sow it into the top of a pot 
cover it lightly with compost, keep it watered, and just leave it outside until they germinate. And because they're hardy, you can act, you can leave the pot outside in the elements, and it's no problem at all. Just don't be too keen to to give up on them because if you're sowing it in August or September time the seedlings might well not germinate until the following spring so just be a bit patient with them the last thing to say is that there are some named cultivars or varieties that you can look at and most of these are double flowered and it's worth saying why we don't generally recommend double flowered plants for wildlife and that's because most double flowering plants they give up the sexual parts of the flower in exchange for these extra petals and that's the part where all the pollen and nectar is produced exactly so the leaves are still excellent as a food plant but if you've got the choice of a double flower or a single or an open flower then this the open flower has the added benefit of that pollen and nectar over the double so generally we always recommend the open flowers but the thing with these double flowered varieties is that they well they are cultivated because they're they're propagated now intentionally but they actually arise naturally quite frequently and as far back as the year 1613 there was a double flowered form that was cultivated called flore plano and this was described in a copper plate engraving in, in an old uh, herbal book back then. So while we won't recommend you buying the double flowered forms for your garden for wildlife, if you do grow them from seed and you end up with a double flowered form, then you're just really lucky because they might be just extra pretty to look at, basically. A good open variety, though, is called Rolly's Favourite. And I think this is probably the one that I was splitting um, because there's not that many cultivated open ones that you can just buy in the shops. And Rolly's favourite was basically selected because it's got a long flowering period as well and it's got a slightly trading habit, so it makes it a good plant for the garden. I think you're probably right because the ones you split were quite squat, weren't they? That's but, right, yeah. yeah. You can give that one a go and you can buy it online or from garden centres around the country. Whether it's one of the cultivated ones or the wild ones, they look great in a border, they make good pot plants too. And because they are so easy to come from seed, they're really a free, beautiful, low-maintenance plant that is suitable for just about any garden. And we're a big fan, increasingly, of what we call sort of selective weeding. And we've got one big border where Red Campion just turned up of its own volition, amongst lots of different things that we planted as well. And like Ben said, when you know what the seeding looks like, you can remove it from where you don't want it if it does start to smother your existing plants. But we've left it in what gaps there were. And now it just sort of intermingles with all the other cultivated plants. And we just let it do its thing. And it's just, it's just looking really, really great, basically. Yeah, because this, the, the, the particular border Ellie's talking about is um, great flowering later on in the summer. And it's really beautiful in sort of March, April time because there's loads of bulbs and it's got bluebells and stuff coming up. But that sort of mid-May to June time, we were thinking we would need to buy basically a load more plants to fill those gaps. But then it's just done it itself. <laughs> now the, the flowering goes for seven months, basically. It's great. So that's it for the Native Plant of the Week this week. Coming up... Yes, in the next episode, we will be discussing whether or not we should all be planting native or non-native plants. Yes, it's, I've been looking the, forward to this episode. Very, it's a huge debate. You see things written about this all the time and we're really looking forward to dissecting those arguments. Yeah, and as Ellie said, it's a talk we're writing up for some gardening clubs as well. So although we'll only have, what, about half an hour 
to cover the topic when we do one of the talks for the gardening clubs i think i'll um, record the talk as well and then we can release it as a bonus episode so if you are interested in the topic look out for that we we've certainly got one talk lined up in september time and we'll put it out as a special extra episode then if you want more detail We'll also be covering some upcoming gardening events because we've not done that for a while. So if you know of a wildlife gardening event coming up, whether it's online or in your area and you want us to give it a bit of a shout out, then please do let us know about it. And then the episode after that, we will be airing the interview that I'll be doing with Nick Chu from the University of Bristol just this weekend. We're recording that. And like Ben said, he is researching how much nectar there is in each plant that we have in our garden and in the wild so i'm really looking forward to getting the answers from him as well yeah and after that the next book club this will be in four episodes time but if you want to get involved and uh, look for a book to be reading this summer then the next one we'll be covering is by pam lewis and it's called making a wildflower meadow and i've already read the book but i'm gonna have to refresh myself i read it a couple of years ago and it's an exploration of how the trials and tribulations pam went through when trying to develop wildflower meadows on various different patches of her garden at home it's a perfect read for july because that's when the meadow flowers are going to be at their absolute peak as well so you might well be inspired to actually start creating one in your own garden that's right and if you're going to be creating a meadow there's some stuff you might want to be doing in september time so it's really good to get a bit ahead and know what you need to plan to to do so that's it for this episode and the next episode will be episode 13 which means we have officially reached half a year's worth of podcasts yeah it's flown by and we've also just reached 5,000 downloads for the podcast as well which is great so thank you all to everybody out there who's listening if you'd like to leave us a review on itunes then that is really helpful to us as well helps us get into the ears of new listeners and also bumps us up the podcasting charts as well so for now that just leaves us to say goodbye bye bye